video messes with me a little bit, so uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons that will stick with us from the blessings of our earthly fathers. But now we turn to our heavenly Father for instruction. We ask that you remember what you teach us as we look at your son, Jesus Christ, and rely on your spirit to have his words change our minds and hearts. Amen. I want to take a moment and uh, introduce you uh, to two really uh, influential men in my life. Maybe they're the most influential men in my life. Uh, uh, I can't think of two others who are much more influential to these guys. Don, if you want to go ahead and um, throw this picture on the screen here. Uh, The one um, next to me and the the yellow there, his name is Ricky King. Uh, He's my pastor. Uh, He was the person who introduced me to Jesus. Uh, as, a, as a young boy, some of you I know a little bit of my story. I wasn't raised um, going to church often. Uh, my parents, uh, they, they had, there's nothing wrong <laughs> about church for them. They just didn't take us on a regular basis. And so I started uh, going to church kind of on my own after being invited uh, by a, a cousin of mine to the church down the road. And he was the youth minister at the time. And he kind of took me under his, his wing and uh, taught me about Jesus. And he is uh, one of the reasons, if not the reason, I, I wanted to become a pastor. Uh, and so this past week, uh, he and I and the guy in the green, who is my father, uh, and uh, also Ricky's, he's got a twin brother who took the picture, um, all went up to Lake Erie and uh, we went fishing uh, for a few days this past week. The guy in the green with the camo hat holding my fish, um, no, that's his. Uh, that's, that's my dad. Some of you have, have met my father. Uh, my father has always been very supportive. Even when he wasn't a Christian, my father was, was supportive. One of the things that I was always sure of is that my father wanted to, to be around me and to be with me. Uh, today, my son, before the service, came up and gave me uh, my Father's Day gift which was just incredible. It was just a picture of me and him because I, I coached him for T-ball. So it was a picture of he and I together at the T-ball field, right? It, my, my father coached me as a T-ball player all the way up and all of those sorts of things. Uh, my dad is one of the reasons that I can never think of a time where I didn't want to be a father because he was, he was a good father to me. The reason I introduce you to, to these two people is not to tell you that I have a pastor, had a pastor, or had a good father, or anything like that, but is actually to kind of share with, you, share with you what they actually have in common. And what they have in common is that they represent God to those given to their care. Both your pastor and your fathers, and fathers in general, represent God to those who have been given to their care. And so if you are a dad, God has given you children for the sake of you representing their heavenly father to them, the same way that a pastor should represent Christ. I want us to take a look at this this morning as we look at the story of the prodigal son. And so if you have your Bibles, uh, turn over to Luke 15. I didn't give you sermon notes today. I'll also put it on the screen. Um, there, are also, there are pew Bibles there if you want uh, to follow along in the pew Bible. I am actually going to read out of the NIV. I typically read out of the ESV, 
Um, and just while you're kind of getting those Bibles out, one of the things that I want to remind you about our Pew Bibles too, if you don't have a Bible and want a Bible, just take one. They're, they're there for you. Um, I'd rather you have a Bible than not have a Bible. So you, those are, are there for you. If you don't have one, we can, we can replace them. So Luke chapter uh, 15, we're going to begin in verse 11. I'll give you a second. I can still hear some people turning pages there. Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. It says there was a man who had two sons. This morning, just so you know, I'm just gonna t- uh, we're just going to focus kind of on the first son and the way the father interacts with his first son. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my, state of, my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. If you have a, a, a pen or a pencil or a marker or you just want to kind of follow along here, uh, you know, one of the things that I would encourage you to do for the sake of this sermon, if you want to take notes, is to underline the idea of a man, father, and father again here. It's mentioned basically three times that there's a father in this story. What we need to see here is that fatherhood is special to Jesus. Being a father or fatherhood is special to Jesus. Jesus calls God Father 65 times. He tells 46 fatherhood stories, and he refers to God as Father over 165 times. This is significant because in the Old Testament, God is actually rarely referred to Father. In fact, he's only referred to Father about 15 times. And it usually has to do with God being the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel in general. In fact, I'll read you a passage out of Psalms here that talks about God as father, but it talks about it in this way, and it says this in Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. In this passage, God isn't called a father. He's actually compared to a father. And a lot of the Old Testament, when it's actually calling God father or um, using this idea of God a father, it's not actually calling him a father. It's comparing him or saying that he is like a father. And so what we see in the New Testament and what we see through Jesus is actually Jesus making a special effort for us to see God as our father. Jesus emphasizes fatherhood for two primary reasons. One is because God is actually Jesus' father. Uh, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary, so God actually is Jesus' father. So when Jesus is referring to God as his father from time to time, Jesus is actually calling God his daddy. Also, though, and the second reason that Jesus wants us to see God as his father is because Jesus is wanting us to see God as father in a special way, in a way that He isn't represented as much in the Old Testament. He wants us to see God as our heavenly father. He wants us to see God as our father as well. And this isn't because God has changed. This wasn't left out of the Old Testament because God was trying to hide anything from us. What we have in the Bible is what we call progressive revelation about God. We find his ultimate expression in Jesus Christ here. And so when Jesus refers to God as Father, Jesus gives a special emphasis to the fatherhood of God. And so we should not ever downplay the importance or the role of a father. Fathers have an enormous impact on the lives of their children for both good and bad. I will admit that just as pastors can be, not all fathers are good. We can't deny, though, that fathers have a great 
influence on children because every child and every person feels a deep need for a father. Those without dads or with bad dads carry what many call and, and what a psychologist might call fatherhood wounds or father wounds that can be devastating. I want to just read for you some statistics that tell us and remind us about how important fathers are. 63% of youth suicides happen in a home without a father. 90% of runaway children, which many become trafficked and sold as slaves, come from fatherless homes. 85% of children who show behavioral disorders do not have a father in the home. 80% of convicted rapists did or do not have fathers around to teach them how to treat women. Those without fathers are twice as likely to drop out of high school. When it comes to the child's faith, fathers have the most influence of anyone else in their lives. A Swiss study found that if both parents attend church, the adult child has about a 33% chance to attend church. Uh, as an adult themselves. If the mom only attends, about 2% of adult children will stick around. On the other hand, if the father attends by himself with the children, those children have a likelihood of about 44% to stick around in the church. So moms, you can stay home and you send the dads. (laughs) Uh, No, I, I think what this actually shows, though, is that if the dad takes his faith seriously, the children are more likely to take their faith seriously. If the father is drugged to church by the mom, or if the father is not in some way leading in prayer, leading in scripture reading, leading in the faith in his home, or taking it very seriously, the kids know that, right? And it has a profound effect on the children. Further, these statistics are remotely true. Our mental health issues, suicide rate, homelessness, human trafficking, behavioral disorders, criminal activity, sexual abuse, poor education, and complaining about whether or not our adult children will follow Jesus are all issues that we should start solving by training up good and godly fathers. Now, in spite of the clear implications of a father's influence, dads are often disrespected or seen as incompetent or have their roles downplayed in the home by our television screens. Part of the shock, though, of the story of the prodigal son is that the father, who should have been shown love and respect, is not shown that at all. Respect for fathers should be something that we promote and celebrate, but it is often rarely the case even though this is probably what fathers long for most. Think about the shows you grew up watching. Most of them have some type of bumbling dad who is mostly incompetent to parent while the mother is never. The man may be very lovable, but is often rarely intelligent or competent and is typically causing more problems than they can fix. On the other hand, imagine a show where the mother is always the butt of the parenting jokes. To my knowledge, that doesn't exist. They don't exist because it makes us uncomfortable. In fact, 
in many of these shows, the mother's not just the mother to the children, she's also the mother to the father on those shows. Uh, maybe, you know, I mentioned I grew up occasionally watching The Simpsons, or not occasionally, a good bit, right? Homer is probably the ultimate example of this. And, and the church is sometimes guilty of this too, right? If I were to stand up here today on Father's Day and tell dads that they need to get their act together, and um, which, by the way, I, I've done from time to time, many people would leave and they would say, Josh, that was a wonderful sermon. Somebody needed to say that to our dads. They needed to say that to our fathers. On the other hand, imagine if I did that to mothers on Mother's Day. I would get some nasty letters. And then sometimes dads are motivated by that sort of thing a little more than moms are. I understand that. So that's why I've done a little bit of that from time to time. So I'm not saying that we shouldn't challenge our men in any way. Sometimes that's what they need. But what we shouldn't do is be overcritical of fathers or dads or men. I'm not saying that we shouldn't laugh at them or that I shouldn't be able to laugh at myself. If you've been around me, I'll tell jokes about myself. Right? That's, that's important. We just want to be careful not to disgrace what God has made sacred. In the story of the prodigal son, the son disrespects the father by asking for his inheritance. What the son wants from his father is embarrassing and hurtful. By asking for his inheritance right now, he is basically telling his father, I wish you were dead. Imagine the hurt the father feels. A father may have trouble showing it, but they can be hurt. This is not a relationship the father had dreamed about from this child. No father starts out hoping that they will have a strained relationship with their child or desiring for them to rebel. Most have dreams of their children, seeing them as their hero and hopefully even eventual friend. This father's youngest son, though, is rebelling in the worst way. He's entitled and he's asking for an inheritance that doesn't belong to him in the first place. As a younger son, the, the father isn't even expected to give him anything at all. This inheritance belongs to his oldest son. But the father gives to the son what he asks and he divides the inheritance up between the two sons. By doing this, the father's reputation is ruined. He gave into his son and now his son is leaving the family. He is setting off to go to a place that is far from his family, far from his friends, and is far from the faith that his father raised him to have. This brings shame to his father's name and to his father's family. I personally have discovered that many men never recover from a moment like this. They can't bear to be embarrassed by their children. It can be something as small as watching their child watch the third strike go by or something as large as actions that put their children in prison. Some can never find it in themselves to forgive their children once they are embarrassed by them. Verse 13, we're told that not long after that, after the son has asked for an inheritance, the younger son got together all that he had and he set off for a, dif- a distant co- country and there he squandered his wealth and wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. 
The son is now separated from the father and everything the father had to offer him. The young man in the story believed that he would be free from his father, but now he's desperate and without hope. He has no money, family, or friends around. He's not acting like his father's child or son at all that he was raised to be. His father is wealthy, his father is dignified, his father is kind. This father hoped that his son would be like this too. Instead, his son is broke and he has left behind all moral training that was ever given to him. We know this because he has mentioned uh, him living wildly and not only that, he is, he is living with the pigs, he is feeding the pigs, which shows that he has rejected the faith of his father. Uh, Jewish men at this time did not eat uh, pigs or they weren't even around pork. He has left the country and the place where people worship God to go to a place that they do not worship God and that they do not follow him. Therefore, we know that the son has thrown his dignity to the wind and he is even thinking about doing the unthinkable as he lives as a godless person and is contemplating eating garbage. This broken son is clearly suffering the consequences of his rebellion. I think it should make us all want to ask the question, or it makes me ask the question, why would his father let the son go through all of this? But I think it's a reminder of Romans 1, 24 and 25, where we're told God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The son was let go by the father, not because the father desired for the son to suffer, but because the will of the son is strong. On the other hand, the father hopes that the son will discover the empty promises that the world makes and return home to the truth and the goodness of his dad. At some point, to varying degrees, every child will live out these lies, and as a parent, we must hope and pray that they will return to the truth. The son's desperate, desperation indicates that he is taking a step closer to doing just that. In verse 17, we are told this. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and I will go back to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. So the son here, he has an idea, he has a plan, and he's gonna take action. The son's basic idea is that he's going to throw himself on the mercy of his father after completely failing to live apart from him and the way that he taught him. His idea consists of returning to his father with nothing to show from his time away except the scars of his rebellion. So that's his idea. His plan is to give up his sonship and become a servant, and remember this, to try to earn his way back to his father's love and try to earn his way back into the family. So he rises and sets off to his father with all of his guilt and with all of his shame. Again, we should stop and ask, what kind of son would return to his father hoping that he would be accepted after telling him he wished he were dead, bringing shame on his family and then wasting? The only answer I can come up with is that a son who knows the love of his father deep down. 
the son intuitively knows his father loves him. In verse 20, we're told, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and I have sinned against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. This whole time the son is away, the father is longing for the son's return. We know this because he is looking for the son and he spots him while he is still a long way off. You can imagine this father sitting on the porch and looking down the road and he sees the shadowy figure of his son coming. This is a father who never gives up hope for his children, who never allows bitterness to reign in spite of the way that he has been treated by his son. So instead of bitterness, we are told that the father has compassion for his son. If your child would have done this, what would you feel the first time you saw them? Would it be compassion? Or would it be disappointment, anger, bitterness? or maybe indifference towards that child? I think a question that we just all contemplate right now is how do you feel about your children right now? Maybe you had a hard time getting them to church, right? So it's not a good time to ask you that question. A bad day yesterday. What's the dominant feeling for your children? Is it love? Is it compassion? How would your children describe you or describe the way that they believe that you feel about them? If I gave them the choice between compassion and indifference, what would it be? Not only does the father show compassion here, but he shows affection. It's not a word we often probably think of when we describe our fathers, affectionate. The father ran to his son. This is significant because in the Middle East at this time, men don't run. Running was humiliating. It was embarrassing. It was beneath men, especially wealthy men, especially dignified men. So once again, the father is showing love for his son that caused him embarrassment. And now his son is causing him further embarrassment as he runs to his son, but he doesn't care. Fathers, our primary concern should not be whether or not our children make us look good or even show us honor, but whether or not they know if they are loved by us. After running to his son, the father throws his arm around his son and he kisses him. Here's why all this is important. Notice very carefully that the love of the father The father's compassion and affection is revealed to the son about his plan. The father's love and affection and compassion is given to the son before the son ever says, I'm sorry. It's clear that the father has absolutely no intentions of making the son his servant or slave or making him earn any of his love or re-earn anything that he lost when his son rejected him in the first place. 
I remember a conversation with my dad. My dad was telling me uh, uh, about a friend of mine, my age, that uh, had, um, we all knew that he was addicted to drugs and uh, his family went off and they went on vacation. And they were gone for a time and he uh, broke into the home uh, or had a key to the home. I'm, I'm not really sure all those details. But he threw this just wild party. And he destroyed everything. I mean, completely destroyed their inside of their home, their, their yard, their stuff was everywhere. It was, it was bad enough to where they, they, had to, they had to call the police and make an insurance claim. It, it, was, it, was, really, it was really bad. Um, and I, I remember my dad looking at me, and um, we were talking about this, I think, at the dinner table. And he, he said something. He, he looked at us and said, if one of you boys ever did that to your mother and I, I take you to the cabin and I tie you up until you dried back, dried out, and I'd bring you home with me. Now I know that if you have children uh, with addiction problems, it's, it's not that easy, right? You can't just do that. But what my dad was communicating to me there is that nothing that my bro- there's nothing that my brother and I, my brother and I, could do. We could destroy his home or his reputation that would separate us from the love of our father. Nothing. Some of you might have a strained relationship with your children. And you might say, well, pastor, if my son would just confess to the wrong that they did or for their disrespect or, or whatever it might be, I would love and forgive them. This story, though, teaches us that confession is not central to a father's love. The son's confession is a response to the father's love. The son returns to the father because, of the deep, because deep down he knows that he is loved by the father. He knows he is the son of this loving father. This is true of every Christian, by the way. We do not make ourselves worthy to be God's children. That's not how being God's child works. Becoming someone's child is not something that you do, but something that actually happens to you. This is why Jesus can tell Nicodemus that you must be reborn. This is why it's so confusing. Nicodemus says, what do you mean I must be reborn? I must enter my mother's womb? Well, you are reborn spiritually when you enter God's family. And this is something that happens to you. It's not something that you do. We are reborn the moment we realize God's great love for us through Jesus Christ. You were not reborn the moment you confessed your sin. You were reborn and then you confessed sin. You realized that God gave his one and only son on your behalf to die in your place for your rebellion and in spite of your rejection for God. Once you realize the love of God in your life, if you didn't, you got it backwards. And this is why Paul can tell us it's the kindness of God that brings us to repentance. God's love continues to be shown in this story as he celebrates the son's return. In verse 22, we're told, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. As the son is confessing here, the father does something very interesting. He actually cuts the confession off. Why? Because he wants the son back now. Maybe you're here today and you are separated from your heavenly father. 
You are not living with your heavenly father. You believe that he won't accept you. But the message for you is clear. He wants you to come to him now. Don't delay. And don't worry at this moment, right, if that is you, about aligning your life up with him before you do that. Give your life to him now and allow his love to change you. Your earthly father may not have loved you, may not have taken care of you, may not have received you that way, may have made you earn his love, may have made you earn his acceptance, but your heavenly father will not and does not. For the celebration of his son, the father clothes the son to remind us of this. For the celebration of this lost son, the father covers the son with three different things. First, he covers his son with a robe. The robe represents the father's forgiveness of the son. It's a reminder of Isaiah 61.10 where it says, I am overwhelmed with joy, uh, overwhelmed with the joy of the Lord my God. For he has dressed me with the clothing of salvation and draped me in a robe of righteousness. For every Christian that turns to God, he is forgiven just like this. He is clothed with God's robe, and he's been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, a righteousness that is not our own. We all have been given the righteousness of Jesus. It has all been placed on us. This is God showing us that he loves us as much as he loves his son, Jesus Christ. Second, the father puts a ring on his son's finger. It's a signet ring. The son now represents his father who loves him once again. Well, shouldn't the son get his act together first before he represents the father? The implication here is this, is that the father's love for the son and the son's love for the father will persuade the son to represent the father as he should. We represent and we, we imitate those we love and lo those who love us. Third, the father puts shoes on his feet because no child of a wealthy father wouldn't have shoes. The father makes sure that this son knows that his primary designation is not a servant, but it is a son. And this son will never be able to earn his father's love. That is out of the question. That's given to him. So fathers, today... Remember, one, that you are the son. You are the son. You came to God with nothing to offer him. We have all sinned and squandered parts of our lives. Yet God shows his great love for us that he sent Jesus to die on the cross for us to pay our debt. Then Jesus rose from the grave because God wanted us to know that although our sin is awful and our rebellion is strong, God has made a way for us to be with him forever and he desires to be with us. We always make our way back to God and become his sons through the love that he has offered us through his son, Jesus Christ. You never, ever, ever earn your way to God. You never, never, ever earn God's love. Therefore, your ability to be a godly father does not begin with you earning a great paycheck, always getting discipline right, or being the perfect husband. It begins with you understanding the love of God. God does not love you because you are a great son. He loves you because you are his son. 
because you are his child. And there's nothing you can do to earn that. It's given. Therefore, be careful never to make your children earn your love. Second, this being the case, you are called to show the love of our Heavenly Father to your children. You represent God to your children whether you like it or not. This is how God has designed the world. God has placed that calling, the calling of fatherhood in, in, in your life if you have children. Maybe you would want to choose to help father a child who doesn't have a child, adopt a child, or take somebody's child under your wing. You may not, we may not believe that we have any more right, uh, impact on children than their mothers do, or we represent God any more than their mothers do. But if you believe anything from the studies that I wrote, you actually have more. Therefore, you are called to be a dad full of grace and mercy, showing God's great love for your children. Each children is, desire, or is designed to long for your love and compassion in the same way that we are designed to long for and need God's love and compassion in our lives. Therefore, decide today to be sure that your children know that you love them each and every day. Some of you might say to me, Pastor Josh, you don't know what my children have done to me and other people. And that's true. I don't. But I'm going to assume that you, like just about every other parent, desire for your children to return to you or turn to God. And the prodigal son reminds us that the primary motivator for a child's return return or for a restored relationship is love. It's love. And I want to remind all of us that if we truly know and believe that we are forgiven and loved, we don't always have to give them the keys to our house. We don't always have to give, we don't have to give them an early inheritance. That is not what this text is about. But we must let them know that they have our hearts. Fathers, always decide to show compassion and affection towards your children because God has done that for you. Let us pray. Father, this morning we come to you as your children and we thank you for that. We thank you that we can say that we are children of God and it's not because we have earned that right but because you have given that, uh, that to us. We, have been reborn. we were reborn the day that we received the grace of Jesus Christ that you offered up on our behalf to tell us, Father, that there's nothing that we can do to earn our love but that is given. And we thank you for that. We pray that both as fathers and mothers that we remember that. That you love us because we belong to you. So Father, we pray that you help us to be compassionate and loving parents. I pray that you help us to remember that we don't always get it right and that we are very imperfect in our parenting. We are very imperfect in our fathering. 
But as we get it wrong, I pray, Father, that we don't flee from you, but that we always come back to you, that we remember that you are always waiting there, that you are always ready for us, that you will always love us, that you will always offer us mercy and compassion, and that you are patient with us. So let us be patient with our children. We pray that you do help us to understand how to guide our children and disciple our children and discipline our children in the Lord. But never without our eyes on you. I pray, Father, that if there is anybody in this room that does not have a relationship with you, our Heavenly Father, that they would turn to you at this moment that they would come to their senses as the text says and that they would walk to you and that in that moment that they would understand your great love for them and that they would receive your compassion and your affection, that they would receive your son Jesus Christ, that he would become real in their hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit I pray, Father, that if there are any broken relationships between sons and fathers or daughters and fathers this morning, that you would help begin the restoration process. That that brokenness would not be because of anybody in this room or because of a broken heart of anybody in this room. But rather, Father, that you would heal every heart in this room. That every man would love their children the way that you love us. We cannot, we cannot force our, our children to, to return back to us or to turn to you, Father. But what we can do is we can love them as you have loved us. So we pray, Father, that you make your love in our lives real so that we can love others as you have done. Pray for the sons and daughters in this room who are estranged from their fathers, might return to their fathers, that they might let them know that they are forgiven and that they are loved in spite of all the mistakes that they had made. Give us the power to do that through your son, Jesus. We can ask this, Father, because you are a good father. You are a father that loves us. And Father, we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.